Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 5. Romans, chapter 5. We read this passage in connection with the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 3, where we trace the origin of our misery. We hear the word of God in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And patience, experience, and experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. 
that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So far we read from God's infallibly inspired word. I call your attention especially to verse 12, Romans 5 verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. In harmony with this passage and all of Holy Scripture is the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 3, found on page 4 in the back of our Psalter. Lord's Day 3. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means, but God created man good and after his own image in true righteousness and holiness that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature. From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, hence our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? We have a sorry testimony before us our catechism is speaking of man, that is, of all mankind. Every man, woman, and child that ever lived or will live upon the face of the earth. It's talking about us. And it makes bold to say that we are wicked and perverse, even so wicked and perverse. It's the unavoidable conclusion drawn from the previous Lord's Day. There we confess that we cannot possibly keep God's good commandments because we are prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor. But it goes on to speak of the depravity of our human nature. As this sixth question is formulated, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? It should be clear that this is a leading question that requires a negative answer. That should be obvious from that word then. That's an important word here. Otherwise, the question would virtually be blasphemy. Imagine, did God create man so wicked and perverse? Perish the thought 
Can there be unrighteousness with God? Can we lay the blame for our sinfulness upon the Holy One of heaven and earth? Let no one ever say that. And yet, we can understand that the fathers of old put the question just this way. For persistently the thought arises in our sinful souls, why? Why is there so much misery in the midst of this world? Why am I conceived and born in sin? Do I deserve all this awful misery? On and on. What right do we have mere specks of dust to bring God to trial before man. What right have we to question the wisdom and power of the Most High God? God is just in all his works and ways, and all the earth must keep silent before him. And it's in this light that the word then makes all the difference in this first question. For the result is that this question requires a no, a negative answer. Our fathers had their good reasons for wording this question this way. First, they wanted to show us by way of contrast how wonderfully we are made. Second, they wished to point out our exalted position in the beginning in paradise in order that we may realize how far, far we have fallen Thirdly, they wanted us to see that the accountability of our sin lies entirely with us. The accusing finger of God's law points directly at us so that finally we can experience the only comfort in life and death that we belong unto our Savior Jesus Christ, in whom is all of our salvation, in order that we may praise and glorify our great God forever. And so at this point we are asking, what's the explanation of this astounding and horrible fact of man's misery? And very logically the question is, is this then the way we were made. And the catechism proceeds to trace the origin of our misery. It's in this light that we consider this morning Lord's Day 3 under the theme, Discovering the Source of Our Misery. And we see, first of all, that it was found in the fall, the fall of our first parents. Secondly, we consider the universal consequences and finally, we see our resulting depravity. Our first father, Adam, was created by God on the sixth day of the week of creation, formed in a very wonderful, marvelous, very special way. We read that he was formed of the dust of the ground. The animals, you may recall, were simply called from the dust. That already emphasizes that Adam was set apart from the animals. 
But we also read in Genesis 2, verse 7, that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And it is that action of God by which Adam was not merely given physical life, but a life which at the same time had a spiritual aspect. Man, so we read, became a living soul. Of no animal could that be said. And God created Adam as head over all of that marvelous creation. He must subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Adam was its king under God. And we read, too, that Adam was formed in the image of God. It was an image which was a likeness of the living God. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're given an idea of what that image is. Colossians 3, verse 10, points to knowledge as part of that image of God. As the Catechism informs us, Adam could rightly know his Creator. Adam could know, though as creature, the truths concerning God as revealed in the creation. Two other elements of this image are mentioned in Ephesians 4, verse 24, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Righteousness is that which conforms to the perfections of God. Holiness is to be separate, separate from sin, dedicated completely to the service of God. So was Adam created by God. He was perfect, without sin, fully capable of carrying out the commands of God in love. But further, Adam was created in a covenant relationship with God. Adam was made so that he could fellowship with God himself. The creator and the creature could dwell in blessed harmony. This was not a matter of a sort of an agreement between God and Adam, nor, nor was this a matter of a so-called covenant of works. Some believe that Adam could have himself attained to heavenly life if he remained obedient to God's commands for a specific length of time, but there's nothing in the account which would indicate that such is true. God did declare to Adam that if he disobeyed God's command, he would surely die, but God never said that through obedience, Adam could have entered heaven. Rather, God formed Adam so that he was capable of serving God perfectly and communicating his love and gratitude to his creator. Adam could hear the speech of God and discern the beauty of God's handiwork in all of creation. It was a relationship of friendship which could continue on this earth in the way of Adam's obedience Obedience earned nothing for Adam, but it was 
itself the cause of joy and happiness for Adam and his wife Eve. God's commands to Adam were simple and clear. To dress or cultivate the garden and to keep it or guard it. Adam and Eve also were given the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Obedience to these commands was at the same time the expression of Adam's love for God who gave the commands. He must obey with the understanding that to do otherwise would immediately sever himself from God's favor, which is, in a word, death. So we clearly see that man was created good. As Solomon declared in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright. But Adam did not long remain in this state of perfection. It's not impossible, though Scripture gives us no details as the time span, but Adam may well have fallen into sin within a matter of days or weeks after his good creation. For Satan came into paradise. Satan, too, was a creature of God, though not as Satan, but as a good angel, perhaps even the highest among the angels. But Satan soon fell from his highest state, and now he sought to take with him not only the angel realm, a third of which fell with him, according to Revelation chapter 12, but he also desired to destroy the good creation on the earth. Indeed, he planned his attack cleverly and carefully. Rather than coming directly to Adam who stood as the head of all mankind that should hereafter be born and head over Eve, his wife, Satan came to the woman. And there were doubtlessly reasons for that. Perhaps the responsibility of headship, which was Adam's alone, was a large factor which Satan considered. Obviously, he believed that his best hope of reaching Adam was through his wife, Eve. Satan comes in the form of the serpent, which is described in Genesis 3, verse 1, as more subtle than any beast of the field. So the serpent was evidently the highest of the realm of the animals, and Satan would use him in order to approach Eve. His approach, too, shows his craftiness. He doesn't tell Eve to take of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was forbidden them, but he certainly 
leads her, compels her to compare that one forbidden tree with all the other trees of the garden. And he asks her whether God said that they could eat of all the trees of the garden. He knew the answer very well, but he wanted Eve to compare that one forbidden tree with all of the other trees from which they could eat. And obviously, in itself, that one tree was not essentially different from the others except for the command of God not to eat of the fruit of it. But Eve falls for the deception of the devil. She acknowledges that they may eat of all of the trees but one. But of that one she makes claims concerning that which God had not said at all. Eve insists we may not touch it lest we die. God hadn't said anything about not touching that tree, nor did God say, lest ye die. God did emphatically say that they would surely die if they ate of that one tree. And the difference is obvious. Eve makes death a possibility upon disobedience, but God had said that it was certain. And now the devil comes boldly forth with the lie. Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And Eve was ready to believe that lie. For no more does she hold fast to the word of God, nor does she turn to her head, Adam, for advice and consultation. No, but she reaches forth and takes that fruit and eats. And as Satan well knew, she immediately would give it to Adam, and he did eat. Eve could not be content in her own transgression. Both understood well that the perfect could not dwell with the sinner, and Adam is persuaded that he must join his wife in transgression. So we trace our misery to the fall and disobedience of our first parents in paradise. What of the consequences? Both died as God had said. There was no intervention of some common grace so that some elements of spiritual life remained. God's word is fulfilled in all its dreadful reality. Adam and Eve died. That death did not mean that they both simply fell down lifeless to the ground. Their earthly existence continued, but now death reigned in their members. They were instantly subject to sickness and disease, to pain and sorrow, and finally physical death. 
but were still, the moment these two transgressed, they were severed from the favor of the Most High God. No more could they have blessed communion with the living God. No more could they experience and expect his love and grace. Rather, they were convinced of his righteous wrath. And therefore, too, they hid before God to avoid, if they could, the accusing eyes of the Almighty. And their death also included that final condemnation in everlasting hell unless a way of redemption were found. In this sin, Adam became not only guilty before God for violating God's law, but he also became totally polluted. We hear a lot about pollution in our days. Well, that's what happened to the very nature, the being of our first parents. This one transgression was not just a, a minor slip-up. It was not just a slight error or a blunder from which they could recover and continue in perfection. Rather, this one act of sin affected every part of Adam. His mind, his will, his deeds... <laughs> That single act of Adam was compared to the putting of drops of poison into a glass of water. That act, once performed, was not reversible. Nor do the drops of poison remain in isolation from the rest of the water in the glass. Immediately the poison affects that water within the glass. And so it was with Adam that one sin was as poison affecting the whole of his being. Everything was affected by the fact that Adam had disobeyed. He had rebelled against the Most High God. And now he was totally corrupted. He could no longer do anything that was good. Nor did anything alleviate man's dreadful situation. From this point on, man must dwell upon the earth under the wrath of God. He would very really be the living dead. Though continuing physical existence, he would be completely unable to serve and honor his maker. He was dead in trespasses and sins. The sad fact was that Adam did what would of necessity affect all his posterity, his children, in their generations, born from him and his wife. Scripture emphasizes the fact that Adam's sin was the sin of all those born from him. God had made Adam both the representative head and the first father of the whole human race. He represented all those subsequently born out of him. Though many might try to argue that that's unjust, 
The simple fact remains that Scripture teaches this to be so. As we read in Romans 5, the 12th verse, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And certainly the rest of the passage continues to emphasize that same truth. Verse 17 states, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one. Verse 19 states, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. The conclusion is proper. All those born of Adam are guilty of that sin which he committed, that so-called original sin. He represented each person who comes forth from him, but also that corruption that pervaded Adam's nature immediately upon his transgression is a corruption which affects all of his children too. Adam gave birth to children who were totally corrupt and unable to do any good. And Scripture correctly points out that a corrupt fountain cannot produce sweet water. Neither does a thistle bear good fruit. Where the original stock is corrupt, there comes forth corrupt offspring. As our canons of door declare in Head 3, 4, Article 2. And so it must be clearly seen and humbly confessed that man was not created corrupt, wicked, depraved. God did not make him so. Rather, God created man good and holy, fully capable of serving God perfectly. But it was man himself, through his own willful disobedience, who fell into sin. The fault of his sin lies entirely with man. He cannot blame God, cannot find excuse for his transgression. It follows, therefore, that God is entirely just in carrying out the sentence, death. Man deserves what he receives. This is humbling for us too, is it not? In our foolish natural pride, we are inclined to think quite highly of ourselves. Perhaps we would suggests that we have something to offer God and that we can dicker with God, make a deal with Him. But we too are guilty of Adam's first transgression. We too are born corrupt, unable to do any good whatsoever in ourselves. We have nothing with which to repay the Most High God. We cannot in any way, earn our salvation. We cannot so much as admit Christ into our hearts as we are by nature. We soon 
must humbly confess that salvation can come from God alone. Be not deceived. Evolutionism, all humanistic philosophies, and really all humanistic, man-centered adulterations of the gospel of sovereign grace would have us believe that there's hope for man, that man of himself is on his way up. They would have us believe to one degree or another that man is able to lift himself up by his own power, his own efforts, his own will. They would have us believe that man in his present state has already come a long way from the state of a mere brute in a long and painful process of development to his present level of morality and civilization. They would have us admit that he is better than we would have reason to expect that he has made and can make amazing progress in that direction toward goodness, yea, perfection, or at least that with a a little divine help or a gracious offer of help, he can make such progress. They would have us have faith in man. The outlook for man is hopeful. In this philosophy, there's really no room or no need for salvation unless salvation means some divine help for a man who is essentially still good and struggling upward and willing and able to accept help that's offered him in that upward struggle. There's no room from this point of view for regeneration, a real rebirth, being born again, unless it means simply a reformation and a building and improving of character in man. From this point of view, there's no room for Christ unless he'd be the modern Christ, a man of Galilee, a great teacher who simply shows the way or who is a worthy example to follow, or Christ who is just a compassionate social reformer who we ought to assist in building a better world, or perhaps a Jesus who is a potential savior but whose power to save is strictly dependent on man's willingness to accept him. You see, in this view of man and his worth, there's no need of atonement. The cross of Christ is foolishness indeed. There's no need for redemption, for sin is not guilt before God, and man is not under condemnation. Man doesn't need to be born again. He simply has to be educated and reformed, or at best he is in need of a rebirth that is dependent on his willingness to believe and to acknowledge his need of it, which is, after all, no rebirth at all. But Scripture never gives us this optimistic view of man. 
But on the contrary, it holds before us the awful reality that man, every man, is dead. Death reigns. Man is debased. Yes, his original state was one of perfection, but he has fallen. He is degraded. He is good no more. He plunged himself from the height of moral integrity and life into the depths of depravity and death. Again, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. It's not dawn. It's not even twilight, but it is night, black night for man. We are in the darkness of the night of sin and death, and there is no hope for man in man. It will not do to flatter ourselves with the hope of reaching perfection in our own strength. That hope is false and vain. It is cruel to tease his vanity with a gospel of salvation that's dependent in the last instance, instance upon himself, upon his own will. For death reigns. Man is under death. The situation as far as man is concerned is utterly hopeless. He's locked in the prison of sin and death. He can never break open that door. Death reigns. And the problem of man's sin and death is not, first of all, one of being delivered from the power of death. It is, before all else, a question of being redeemed from our guilt. Before man can be delivered and escape death's power, he must have the right to be free from death's reign. And before he has the right to be delivered, he must atone for his sin. And that he can never do, for he is under death. Death in all its dreadful power. Dying he dies. He's dead in trespasses and sins. And his inevitable and everlasting death is in hell. What can a dead sinner ever accomplish? Again, we cannot object that this teaching is not fair, that we had nothing to say about Adam's representing us, for first of all, all of our objecting will not change the grim and hard reality of the hopelessness of our sin and death, our inherited pollution of nature, our original guilt. But further, this would be itself the height of sinful rebellion. For shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? What if the sovereign of heaven and earth designed and created the race as such a legal solidarity in its representative head, Adam, 
Shall we puny creatures of the dust and sinners besides have the audacity to challenge his doings? Shall we not rather humble ourselves to the dust and cry, sinners we are, sinners by nature, hopelessly lost, dead sinners, such sinners that we could never deliver ourselves from the power of a universal sin and condemnation and death in and under which we are born. And finally, don't overlook the fact that only in that way can we truly see that Christ is our only hope. Yea, our only comfort in life and in death. Don't overlook the last expression in the passage in Romans 5. Adam was the figure, that is, the type of him that was to come. The figure of him that was to come. That doesn't mean that Adam was a type of Christ in every respect, but in a certain particular respect. Here, the respect that's under discussion in the whole passage in Romans 5 was that he was the type of Christ as head, representative head. Adam was the head of a legal corporation, the whole human race, So Christ is the representative head, not of all men, for then all men are necessarily justified and saved in him. And that's not true, but he is the representative head of the church. All the elect, all his own, whom the Father gave him from before the foundation of the world. Adam sins for all, so that all who he represented sinned when he sinned. Christ obeys for all the members of the corporation of which he is the head, his church, so that all have obeyed and are righteous before God when he obeyed. And we do not die in the deepest sense because of our actual sins, We are born in death because we have sinned before we were born in our first father, Adam. And here is the gospel of grace. We do not live, thanks be to God, because of our actual good works, for then we could never live. But we are, by grace, reborn and are made alive unto good works because We have obeyed before we are so reborn in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, beloved, let us not deny this historical cause of our misery. Deny the position of Adam. Deny the reality of his fall. Deny your relationship to Adam and inevitably 
you deny the cross and your salvation. For if Romans 5 is wrong about our relation to Adam, it must also be wrong about our relationship to Christ. As we've seen, according to Romans 5, Adam was the figure of him that was to come. He pointed to the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our only hope is through the cross of Christ. It is only by his spirit that this wonder work of regeneration is accomplished. For if, the, if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Thanks be to God for providing such a wondrous deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the gospel of Thy sovereign grace in Christ. We thank Thee for the comfort that we know even now as we have traced the origin of our misery back to the fall and disobedience of our first parents, thou dost give us to see by thy Spirit the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, who represented us and all his own upon that accursed tree of the cross. We rejoice, yea, we glory in the cross in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be merciful unto us, for Christ's sake. Amen.